California's been leading on climate for years. It's always been, you know, a postcard from the future. Also been leading on politics where Republicans are a third party. So that, I think, is a postcard from the future, well, too. Well, you know, it's funny. I was Before he even said that, Brandon and I are quite a dichotomy here. My take is like, this might be crazy, but I can always leave. Brandon's like, I have never been more proud to be a Californian. <laughs> And I live in a garage in Venice because this state is really expensive. <laughs> California lawmakers just passed a 100% clean electricity mandate. We look at what drove this historic decision. Plus, we explore how other states can follow in California's wake. Hello and welcome to Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental politics in America. I'm Julia Piper, senior editor at Green Tech Media. We also have Brandon Hurlbutt, our Democrat, partner at Boundary Stone Partners, and a former chief of staff at the Department of Energy. And we have Shane Skelton, our Republican, partner at S2C Pacific, and a former energy advisor to House Speaker Paul Ryan. Brandon, I see you wearing a New York t-shirt. What is up with that? This is California's moment this week. I'm behind on laundry, and it was what was clean. It's shameful. It's been uh, an intense couple of weeks. <laughs> You did just run this hood. What's it called? Hood to coast. Hood to coast. That's a long race. It's uh, our fifth year. It's a bunch of my Obama friends who were original guys on the campaign. We've raised seventy five thousand dollars for cancer and run collectively a thousand miles across Oregon in the last five years. Apparently, these guys raised lots of money because I reached out to Brandon and said, "Hey, how do I donate to support you?" It sounds like you're doing something cool. He's like, "Thanks for the thought, but we actually, you know, we raised so much we don't need it." I'm like, "All right, great." So we're not the fastest runners, <laughs> but we do a lot on the fundraising. Well, that's what it's all about, right? Nicely done. I went on a run once. It was traumatic. Back to California. California's 100% carbon-free electricity bill has nearly crossed the finish line. The state legislature formally approved the decarbonization bill on Wednesday, which comes as the Trump administration attempts to revive coal power, which is something we've covered in previous episodes. As we record this podcast, the bill sits on Governor Brown's desk. Assuming he signs it, which he is widely expected to do, the world's fifth largest economy will have to eliminate carbon emissions from electricity by 2045. In the meantime, California will have to get to 60% renewables by 2030, with some interim targets along the way. California has a population of 40 million people and, again, an enormous economy. So if the Golden State follows through on this law, it will prove out the feasibility of a clean energy transition at a scale we've never seen before. Hawaii was the first state to pass a 100% mandate in 2015. Under that law, though, the state's required to get to 100% renewable energy. The difference with California, it's required to get to 100% clean energy. So that includes things like nuclear power. It could potentially even include carbon capture for fossil fuel resources. That's all yet to be determined. Another big difference is that California is just so much bigger than Hawaii. California is already on the right pathway today. About 30% of California's electricity comes from renewable energy. That does not include hydropower. Another quarter comes from hydro and nuclear together. And then natural gas makes up the bulk of the remainder, about 33%, and then there's a little bit of coal in there, too. Brandon Hurlbutt, you're involved with the Solutions Project, which is a group that has advocated for 100% for a long time, even when it was not cool. So tell us about what that experience was like and what it feels like to see this bill on the precipice of being turned into law. Joe Biden once famously said about healthcare, this is a big effing deal. Uh, that applies here to what happened in California. 
He did. So exactly what he said? He did. Remember, he whispered to the president. Well, I thought he, he actually said it, you know. This is a hot mic. All the way through. <laughs> I didn't think he said My mother thing. listens to the show. Fair enough. Saying, Fair enough. <laughs> she'll be disappointed in me. Um, oh, please. But. Again. <laughs> this is historic. I mean, you can't even begin. You know, I'm almost speechless about it. So, yes, I have been involved with the Solutions Project for uh, over five years, which is a nonprofit uh, trying to accelerate the transition to 100%. And I want to share that story because I think there's a teachable moment here. You know, the leadership of that organization, Mark Ruffalo, Mark Jacobson from Stanford, and Marco Kraples, uh, businessman, and Sarah Shanley Hope, the executive director. I mean, this was this was considered a radical idea when we started it, uh, when they started it, and I was uh, helping them. We had, just within the Democratic Party, people uh, were telling us this was crazy, this was not realistic. Within the Democratic Party? Yes. People like my friends and allies were saying... You people were the that punk I res- rock fringe. Pe- people that I respected were calling me up and saying that we were doing damage to the climate change cause by giving people you know, uh, unrealistic expectations that we wouldn't be able to meet. Just to be clear, was that 100% nationwide that you were discussing with your friends or was that 100% California? I mean, we were trying to do this, you know, the original, uh, when Solutions Project started, they put forth plans for each state that could go 100%. And so there were thought leaders calling me up and saying, you know, natural gas is going to be a part of our electricity system for the rest of the century. And that's inevitable. And so we, we rejected that. I mean, there were top environmental organizations that were criticizing us behind closed doors. This bill does allow natural gas, right? I mean, I I can dive into that more later, but it absolutely does. If you do, um, carbon capture and sequestration. Yes. Yes. And so zero carbon emissions, right? Uh, Technology that has not been proven economic yet. Yeah. So, I just I just want to make that point that we went from and there there were politicians who I won't name who laughed the leadership of Solutions Project out of the room. Democratic politicians laughed them out of the room when they said we're for 100 percent. So in the last five years, we've gone from being laughed out of rooms with Democrats to, you know, the fifth largest economy in the world, you know, passing, you know, is going to pass this bill. And so I just want to say for all those, you know, for all you youngsters who are listening out there, you know, when people tell you what the political reality is, when the establishment experts say what's possible, you can make your own political reality. The number of times people have told me that something was impossible, like can't elect, you know, black president in the United States uh, or 100 percent is a crazy idea. I just want to say, like, you could if you build a movement and you organize people, which is what, you know, happened here at the 100 percent movement you can make your own political reality and define it. And that, that's what got this going. And that's why a big reason why this passed is because of the organizing and the movement that was generated to, to, to create support for this. But yeah, how did you get it beyond being sort of a fringe movement to like to being accepted? Because you had to bring it into a mainstream. Is it just sheer time and like banging that drum over and over and over again? Or was there a moment where you kind of felt like, oh, we're getting traction because this has hit on something other people care about? Or what was that, you know, tipping point? I think it starts with inspiring people. And, you know, this is why Barack Obama was a successful politician. You want to, um, you know, create a vision for people and inspire them. And that's what we did. And we connected 
a couple different groups together. We connected the business community. We connected, you know, the academics. And then we used people like Mark Ruffalo and his uh, ability to generate attention uh, to shine a light on this. And we got people excited. And we also, you know, Democrats tend to, like, get really weedy into the wonky, you know, part of the details. And we said, look, we can work that stuff out over time. But let's get people excited because we believe that American innovation is the best in the world. And if we set a goal that's going to benefit everybody with cleaner air, cleaner water, and also benefit our economy, we can figure that out. And so there's going to be hard parts about implementing the 100% bill, you know, getting from 80% to 100% in dealing with the, you know, variability of renewable sources. But I believe that American innovators are going to figure this out. Yeah. So I, I, you know, would not probably have the response that most people would think I would have. There's a few things that I really like about it. Um, there's a lot of things that I don't know, like questions that I would have that I'd want to watch kind of tease out and talk to people about. I don't have anything outright negative to say about it. I think uh, Brandon mentioned that the U.S. is the best, you know, center for innovation in the world. And I think that's absolutely true. So Julia earlier said uh, CCS has never been proven economically viable. Um, that's true on large scale, but neither has 100 percent renewable. So I think, you know, we're all at the table together and trying to figure out how to invest in better R&D. I agree with that. No, I wasn't trying to block it out of the discussion. I'm just there is a lot to be determined. Yeah, w- with all of this. And I think that's what kind of makes it exciting. So where I, you know, where I don't you know disagree or I think I'd be expected to say this is a terrible idea uh, for For starters, I think states should be experimenting with whatever policies work for their state. So in California, you have a lot of access to renewable energy that maybe you don't have in other states. Some you do, by the way, which we're going to talk about later. You also have a public who's been conditioned to want this and they're willing to pay a little bit more. You have off takers of, you know, industrial scale who are willing to to pay and invest and be part of the solution. So the reason I think it's actually great, and I might say something differently if it were a national policy, is I think states do this really well. And if California, you know, can find a path, if they can invest in R&D, if they can get off takers to be creative with regulators and with investors, you know, I think that's fantastic. One of the things I love about it, as we talked about a little bit with CCS, they made it technology agnostic. And I think that's how you really encourage innovation. Uh, I don't like when people say, here's exactly what you're going to do. And if you don't know how to do it, figure it out. I do like, you know, when they say our goal is to be whatever. And in this case, it's 100 percent renewable. You innovators, clean energy, whatever it is, you know, you've got capital, you've got expertise, get out there and figure it out. And if it's, you know, 90 percent from solar. Great. If you create, you know, new battery storage technologies that we couldn't even have imagined uh, 20 years ago. Great. If it's wind. Great. If it's hydro. Great. If it's natural gas with CCS. Great. But I like the fact that they left that door open because I think. When you heard earlier debates about this type of legislation, that really wasn't going to be possible. Um, so I basically, in short, I think it spurs a lot of R&D and competition, which is really fantastic. And the final thing is, I think that all states and the federal government can learn. So if this works out in California, then there are going to be new technologies developed that can be deployed all over the country. If it doesn't work out, then it's a cautionary tale. But in either case, one state is making a decision that they feel is right for that state. And depending on how that goes, there will be you know, a lesson for others. There are great some- if that applied to CAFE with the Republicans, too. Um, so I didn't hear what Brandon just said. I don't know if anyone else did, but, uh, let's just take a moment on that cafe being the fuel economy standards that the administration is maybe considering revoking California's waiver, which allows them to set their own higher standards. So does uh, that hold up or not? Well, well there, and, and there is obviously a big difference. We can talk about that if you guys want. Um, you know, I think the bigger difference is a, 
auto manufacturer has to sell into 50 states. And so what they didn't want to do is have a disjoined market, a disjointed market, excuse me. In this case, California is saying, this is what we're doing here. And it doesn't really impact anyone else, which is which I think what you know gives them a little more freedom to operate uh, with impunity. But some of the questions I have, and I'm not even saying these are bad things, but things I'd want to see answered is, you know, where are utilities on this? Do they think that they that they can do it? Do they think it's achievable? Or even if it's not them, do they think that it can be done? Uh, can they do it without um, harming liability, uh, reliability? Will, you know, massive investments will need to be made in distribution infrastructure and battery storage R&D? All great things, but will PUCs allow that to happen? PUCs being public utility commissions. Um, are there going to be government barriers to, to allowing companies to do the things they need to do to make this happen? And one of the biggest questions for me personally, because as you guys know, I'm sort of obsessed with electrification. Will this actually hurt electrification in that if you're at if you're able to add a ton of new load, if you're able to add load through water heaters and space heaters and EVs, even if you could maybe get to 100 percent renewable based on current demand, if demand increases, even if overall energy demand in California you know, is reduced because electricity is more efficient than maybe petroleum fuels. Can you meet that extra load, even if you could meet projected demand under current circumstances? Take a moment on that. You're saying uh, there's going to be more demand overall in the state. Just growth is going to create higher demand for electricity. And can you meet all of that while switching to clean energy resources? Not natural growth. I'm saying it is my hope that we will see right. growth by switching from, you know, petroleum liquid based petroleum fuels over to electrons. And so if you're looking at the economy as a whole and you're adding California's massive transportation energy consumption to the electric grid, then does the same math hold? Can you still serve all that additional demand? Without? And I'm not saying they can't. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying these are the things that I, as you know, someone involved in policy, would want to tease out and see. And then you know, finally, I think this is interesting to me, is we look at a regional, um, a Western regional energy market. And they've talked about that being one of the better ways, or at least, you know, I think that's one of the better ways to uh, best utilize California's renewable energy resources, clean up the Western grid, but then also maintain reliability across several states. And in this bill, there's a provision that says you can't import out-of-state energy, right, that would increase your carbon footprint. So my question is, does anything in this bill hinder the Western region's ability to to form a cohesive energy market. And again, I'm not saying it does. I'm saying these are all the things that came to mind for me. Yeah, there's definitely a tension between the regional regionalization bill and this SB 100 bill. There's been some rumors that Jerry Brown was waiting to sign SB 100 until they passed the regional bill. Some people think you can't actually do 100% until you have a regional grid for more of the flexibility and reliability reasons. But that opens up the question you said of like, where do those resources come from? And you're right, there is a provision in there that says you can't just build a coal plant right across state lines and have California be technically 100% clean, but still getting power from coal ostensibly. So yeah, all to be worked out. But I think all of that, all of your questions kind of fit into that bucket of it's early days and this is an innovation moment and we'll have to see what happens. Well, and that's why it's so great because if it works, that's fantastic. And they'll you know get the longevity of battery storage up. All these things will need to happen. If it doesn't work, then California will have to recalibrate. But in any case, that's why states are so good at experimenting, because it doesn't shut down the entire national economy if it doesn't work, but it does provide incentive for the national economy if it's successful. And I just want to make a few other points, Julia. Number one, you know, there's been, especially in the media, a lot of attention on this debate about 100% renewable versus 100% clean. And I, th I always thought that that distinction was not you know, there wasn't that much daylight between those groups. Uh, and I think you saw, you know, with SB 100, 
everybody was happy. You didn't see anybody criticizing this, whether you were from the 100% renewable crowd you know, or the 100% clean energy crowd. So I think there's a lot more in common between those groups and there's a lot more unification because what we're going to need to get to is, you know, zero carbon emissions. And we're going to have to stop burning fossil fuels at some point. And I know some people think that's crazy, but a lot of people said 100% was crazy six years ago, as I was saying. Well, and what about nuclear? I don't have a particular passion for nuclear, so I don't have any skin in this game, but it seems like something like SB100 would be a lot easier if California used nuclear power, which is would qualify maybe not as renewable, but would qualify as clean energy. And even leaving California out of it, if you try to stretch this policy across state lines, again, I don't really care about nuclear. I'm not saying it's it's the answer, but it seems like someone should care if you want to go 100% clean as opposed to 100% renewable. A lot of people care, and I think we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. There will be, I think, some infighting within California, and as this conversation spreads nationally about the role of nuclear, I mean, it's already happening. And some of the most vicious debates I've seen on this topic have been with between uh, allies, ostensibly, this clean energy versus renewable energy group. And it gets vicious. That 100 percent paper that Mark Jacobson put out, who is part of the Solutions Project, caused a whole kind of stir. Then a bunch of other academics responded with their own paper, said that 100 percent renewables, as he had laid it out, was not technically feasible. There's a lot of assumptions that go into this kind of modeling, which I understand Mark Jacobson since republished and clarified. So the point is... All those groups celebrated this bill. Right. I just think that there's... I've already seen some articles talking about nuclear having other environmental impacts that need to be uh, taken into account. So I don't think it's an endorsement of nuclear. And I think that debate could potentially intensify. What I think is great about this, it's good policy because it's outcome-based. The outcome is get to zero carbon emissions by 2050. How you get there, the best technologies will win. I believe they will be renewable, but you know, I can't predict what's going to be happening in 2040, so it leaves the flexibility to do that. So that's good policy. What's interesting is that California's last remaining nuclear plant, Diablo Canyon, is slated to close in 2025. And there's a requirement uh, to Shane, I think a point you raised earlier about the the utility regulators and what will they allow to happen as the electricity system evolves. They have already said that Diablo Canyon has to be replaced with low carbon or carbon free resources. And that's trending toward, because of what's available now, renewables and storage, distributed energy resources. And according to some analysts at our team at Wood Mackenzie, that'll actually increase California's uh, clean energy requirement to about 70 percent by that earlier date of of 2030 because of the Diablo Canyon uh, plant going offline. Well, yeah. And, and what's interesting, hey, this is why I'm glad this is one state, because if it doesn't work out, I can leave the state. I don't I don't want to leave the country. So I think it's good to test this out in a market that, by the way, this is very attractive in this market, right? Off takers want this. It's not like, you know, you have Amazon and, and Facebook complaining. I think they, they want to be part of this. So I think it's good in that way. But the other side of it, too, with the PUCs, it's not just do they want to see clean energy. It's are they willing to approve the type of investments that will need to be made? I mean, battery longevity is going to have to increase tremendously. And that's not always, obviously, a rate-based uh, investment. But these utilities are going to have to have utility-scale storage in a very serious way. And there's just a ton of distribution infrastructure, whether that's the software side with better AMI that, that's more real-time, because you're going to need to serve more load with fewer electrons, presumably. And then the actual dis- like the, the, the poles and wires for distribution and transmission – PUC is going to have to say, this is going to be really, really expensive, but we cannot do what the legislature has asked us to do if we don't allow that money to be invested. There are a number of system level things that need to be changed, like 
changes to the power market, managing the duck curve where solar power, you know, generates a ton during the day and then goes offline as people come home and their demand spikes. You know, there'll be questions around the role of importing and exporting electricity from other states, even though California did not pass a bill this last session to officially regionalize the grid. All of these things will have to be answered. So I agree. It's going to be a lot of messy regulatory work. The CPUC will probably be hiring. So watch out for those job alerts because it's going to be a massive effort. But again, I keep coming back to the fact that this is like a moonshot idea and you need those moonshot targets to even possibly consider doing one. You have to put it out there, right, Brandon? Yeah. And I mean, this is why my wife and I moved to California in December of 2016 because we wanted to live in a a place that reflected our values. And so, you know, California taking such a leadership role on this, I think it's important to point out, you know, California, people think of San Francisco and Los Angeles. uh, It has world-class cities, but it also has large rural areas with lots of agriculture. It has like traditional suburbs like down in Orange County. California is a reflection of the demographics of this country. It has everything. And it's 40 million people, not a small sample set, fifth largest economy in the world. And so the fact that this passed so overwhelmingly, I think is a good sign for other states because it can happen, you know, in these other states. And I'm so, I'm just so proud to be a Californian right now. And uh, so proud of the leadership of this state. Yeah, we have to give, uh, I guess, a shout out to Kevin DeLeon, who is the uh, Senate leader pro tem, who is now running for Senate at the uh, national level. He really spearheaded this years ago um, and a bunch of other leaders that have also been involved. Yeah, California's been leading on climate for years. It's always been, you know, a postcard from the future. Also been leading on politics where Republicans are a third party. So that, I think, is a postcard from the future, well, too. Well, you know, it's funny. I was Before he even said that, Brandon and I are quite a dichotomy here. My take is like, this might be crazy, but I can always leave. Brandon's like, I have never been more proud to be a Californian. <laughs> And I live in a garage in Venice because this state is really expensive. (laughs) Um, But actually brings me back to a point, though. You talked about how California represents a wide swath of people of different backgrounds. And this is where the stakes are actually really high. We need to celebrate, but this cannot be taken lightly. And I think the conversation needs to get out of just the technical ones of energy storage. How long should it last? How do we classify natural gas? These conversations have to happen. But also, how do you bring the rest of California along? Because if this fails, you will have turned a lot of people against the 100% movement, not even 100%, any kind of clean energy movement if they feel like they're left behind. And California is still figuring that out. Because if some feel it and feel good about it and others don't, uh, it could be really bad for the movement overall. California has been setting aggressive goals on this for the last 15 years, and they keep hitting them faster. So I'm confident that that can continue. But more Californians than ever are saying that they don't feel like they can pay their bills. I'm one of them. I don't think you quite count, like, just because you don't can't afford the pedicure. <laughs> pedicure prices are through the roof this year. Okay, I want to include that. <laughs> fun of my pedicures. Uh, of that our, is ripe. Uh, that is ripe for the picking. Um, but anyway, getting back on track. Well, again, I'm reminded of what my colleague Dan Finfoli actually said on Twitter this week, um, was talking about moonshots and the true sense of that word. And that means that you don't have an established path forward. And that is how you define a moonshot. So I'm also reminded of comments that Senator Martin Heinrich made on our last episode where he talked about, you know, the decision to go to the moon was made at a time when people didn't know how to get there. And then we're surprised, I think, at how well they were able to execute on it. So setting a vision is important. And California just did that. 
And I you know, want to reiterate the movement that was built that helped set this up. So, you know, we pushed hard for 100%, you know, renewable and wound up with 100% clean, which is, you know, really, really terrific. But if we had pushed for 80% by, you know, 2050, that could be, you know, uh, include, you know, natural gas, we would have wound up in a totally different spot, I think. So it's not, you, it doesn't have the same ring to it. And either. it does. Eighty percent with some natural gas. Yeah, I think <laughs> that sounds like an attractive policy proposal. <laughs> oh, it's like a, it's a, it's a teachable moment for political movements. If you organize and inspire people, and then you ultimately have to, you know, compromise or something just short of, you know, what you asked for, that can be okay too. We can, we can get progress. When we talk about these things like the Green New Deal and such, and stopping burning fossil fuels, that's going to inspire people, and we can organize around that. And then if we have to settle for some incremental steps along the way to get some momentum, you know, okay, we can talk about that. The final thing to think about is that electricity is only a piece of California's carbon and energy footprint. Trevor Hauser at the Rhodium Group tweeted out that 81% of emissions in the state still have to be addressed if you take out the California, or if you take out the electricity component. Transportation, for instance, makes up 46% of emissions, of net emissions in the state. So while this is a massive moment, the conversation is not over yet. Now let's turn to our constituent services segment of the show, where we answer a question from our listening audience. This week's question comes from John Walk, Clean Air Director and Senior Attorney at Natural Resources Defense Council. He wanted to know how Georgia, a deep red state, had become a solar power leader. So we're going to dig into this. First, some background. Georgia's solar power capacity has increased more than 13-fold over the past five years, and now the state ranks as a top 10 solar state in the nation. That growth has come without subsidies. That means no state-level renewable energy target, no state tax credits, no net metering incentives, which are used to compensate rooftop solar customers for the excess electricity that they produce. So how did this happen? A big factor is the specific personalities involved. Georgia has a set of conservative utility regulators who happened to look to Germany, California, and other U.S. states and saw that their state, Georgia, was getting left behind if it remained focused solely on nuclear and coal. So we recently caught up with one of those regulators, Georgia Utility Commissioner Tim Eccles, and here's how he described getting Georgia on the solar map, dating back to early actions in 2012 and 2013. You know, when I got elected to the commission, and that is a difference between Georgia and a a lot of other states, including California, is that we have an elected commission, so we're pretty responsive to voters out there. But when I got elected, we had only four megawatts of solar. It was a program that the utility has started that was a subscription program. It really wasn't very popular, very little DG in our state. And I rented a train and outfitted one of the train cars with solar displays and uh, and took a little trip around South Georgia along this particular railway into Jimmy Carter's hometown and uh, and really began to talk about solar. And then the next year, my colleague, Commissioner McDonald, uh, really, really got engaged. He had been in the legislature for 20 years, had been on the commission for some time. And it was really uh, on his political muscle that we uh, basically went to the utility with three votes out of the five on our commission and were able to say to our utility first to do 210 megawatts, which is nothing on a California scale. but 
uh, and then the next year, 525 megawatts. In that particular meeting, really just in a matter of minutes, we took the power company from doing zero in their integrated resource plan to doing 525, and it was a, it was a stunning development, I think, uh, for Georgia. And this was all a solar that would be purchased by the utility, both DG and utility scale. And as a result of the success of those two programs, I think Georgia Power, which is uh, one of the southern companies. Uh, subsidiaries, they realized, hey, we can make this work. Uh, and they had a good experience with it and wanted to do more. And we've about doubled it every year and we continue to add more and more. And I think we'll, uh, I think we'll probably double it again next year. So you achieved solar growth in the state through energy planning and not so much tax incentives. How did that work in, in a different way that maybe other states have done it? Well, our commission being elected really is not subject to legislative edicts, so to speak. And they give us a, a very long leash through our planning process. So in our opinion, it was the time to go ahead and move on solar. That has not been the case with electric cars. It did take incentives with EVs to uh, to really bring about having about 25,000 electric cars here. So the these two technologies have had two very different paths. And solar definitely has been more successful because the legislators just ended our tax credit on EVs two years ago and it, it tanked our sales, where, whereas solar continues to grow in our state. So why is it that you and Commissioner McDonald and others in the state have decided to get behind solar? Was it just that you liked the technology? Because often these technologies can get politicized and then you don't see any action happening. How did you build a consensus around this being a positive way forward for Georgia? It was controversial in the beginning because a lot of our Republican colleagues, remember we have five Republicans on our commission, a lot of our Republican colleagues in the legislature across the street, they weren't too encouraging about our efforts with solar. They felt like that we were doing a de facto uh, renewable portfolio standard, and we got quite a bit of criticism uh, from Americans for Prosperity, the nonprofit especially. Uh, but this has been so good for middle and south Georgia, which are both very rural, uh, and it's helped those communities, and it's been below the power company's avoided cost for energy. So if you think about it, the 2.4 million customers that Georgia Power has, their rates are, are being lowered uh, in a very small way by all the solar that we've done without a subsidy. So I think it's been just a, a ringing success. and. Because it has been successful, and these cities and counties in the poor areas have benefited, uh, and, and legislators, by and large, feel like, okay, yeah, y'all have proven that this is a, a good thing and, and that, that it doesn't cause rates to go up, and they've essentially trusted us with it, and uh, we've continued to add it as it's been appropriate. So utility regulators in Georgia really saw solar as an economic opportunity as costs continued to fall. And eventually, the legislature did too. In 2015, lawmakers joined with more than two dozen other states in allowing third parties to finance certain sized solar systems. Because of that, the state shot to number eight in the ranking of top solar states in 2016. In 2017, Georgia ranked number nine. The commission doesn't view its solar requirements as a type of mandate. 
It's considered more of an agreement between Georgia Power, the utility, and the Public Service Commission, is how it's been described. It's also an interesting example of environmentalists and the Tea Party joining forces, or at least rowing in the same direction. Eccles noted that the Koch-funded group Americans for Prosperity was opposed to Georgia's solar actions. Meanwhile, groups like Debbie Dooley's Green Tea Party were all for it, viewing it as a step in the direction of customer choice. So you have this fissure within conservative groups. For his part, Commissioner McDonald was an early Trump supporter and is a supporter of fossil fuels, still continues to be. But he also saw solar as a hedge against rising coal and natural gas prices. Georgia's increasing adoption of solar also comes as a state seeks to build the only new nuclear facility in the U.S. at this point in time. Like other proposed nuclear plants, all of which have been canceled, costs for Vogel, the nuclear plant in Georgia, keep going up. Debbie Dooley, leader of the Green Tea Party, seems to think that this nuclear power plant controversy, because it is controversial, could actually create more opportunity for solar as people see nuclear costs going up and push to have more diversity of resources and ask for solar to have greater support. So that is the Georgia story. Thank you, John, for the question. And if you want to ask us additional questions, reach out to poly underscore climate, P-O-L-I underscore climate, and let us know what you'd like us to discuss. So Georgia is not the only state. California is going all the way to 100. We have red states like Georgia advancing increasingly progressive renewable energy policies. These are hardly the only states taking actions like this. Shane, when you think of other red states that you probably track closely, what are some of the actions that come to mind, uh, again, that expand this clean energy movement beyond maybe the typical actors we would think of? Quite a bit. And I think, um, you know, you said progressive uh, clean energy policies. I don't even see it that way. I think we talked about California earlier. And what I see it as is states and, and elected representatives in states doing what's best for their state. And a lot of the time that is clean energy, whether it's from a job creation perspective or whether it's just what meets the need geographically. So I'll give you a few examples. Um, Wyoming uh, is ranked number one by the Union of Concerned Scientists as deploying the most renewable energy. Between 2016 and 2019, 100% of uh, new energy capacity added within the state will be renewable. Um, Wyoming also uh, pairs its university with companies that operate in the state on carbon capture and sequestration. We talked about earlier that that's something you're going to need to see some more R&D on if you want it to scale uh, commercially. In the same Union of Concerned Scientists study, Kansas was ranked number one in increasing its share of renewable energy, and it is now at 30% overall. Some numbers that will probably blow your mind. Uh, a lot of our listeners do know that Texas is number one in overall uh, clean energy capacity. That's because of a lot of wind there, but they actually do outrank California in uh, clean energy capacity. 100% and Texas, 2020. Look at some of these states, though. This is going to blow your mind, some of this. Um, Alaska, 32% mind um, blown zero carbon energy montana 44 percent zero carbon energy idaho 79 percent zero carbon energy south dakota 70 percent zero carbon energy and none of this is because of progressive energy policy it's because these states did what was right for them so my point here is not conservative states are better than liberal states at doing this it's that there are a number of different ways to decarbonize the economy and i think states like california are doing it in the way they know how to best do it and these other states are doing it in the ways that they know how to best do it where I do think a good um, federal role would be is, you know, we talk about what should the federal government be doing? There's a whole lot of things. And I'm still, I promise our listeners, we are going to do our solutions episode. But I think what the federal government could do to incentivize some of this is set standards that would that would allow um, states to get extra grant funding or loan funding from the federal government. So you could say, you know, any state who meets 70 percent renewable in any way, shape or form. 
um, is, you know, now eligible for certain grants or, or certain types of funding. Uh, the Federal Transit Administration just issued grants uh, to a number of lower zero emissions public transportation projects. Um, and that's a really good idea. Now, there weren't metrics involved in that, but this is what President Obama did. Uh, it's called Race to the Top for Education. Uh, which was really a successful way to to do this. And I think we could do something like a race to the top for clean energy. Yeah, you're allowing companies within a state or the state legislators to determine how to meet certain goals. You're not forcing them to do it. And there's no punishment for not doing it. But if I was elected to anything in any state, what I would really want to do is see more federal dollars flowing to my state instead of another state. So if we could encourage companies uh, to invest more in R&D and find really cool solutions to some of the problems we have, I think that way the federal government isn't acting as an impediment to anyone doing anything, but it will help incentivize um, people doing what they already want to do. And as Senator Heinrich said when I asked him, would you support doing some of this stuff if it meant cutting spending in wasteful areas and reallocating those dollars here? So I'm not recommending that we increase the, the he deficit. He said he would do that, right? He said he would. And so, yeah, I'm not recommending that we increase the deficit, but I think we could find a pile of cash and, and, and start helping out states who are trying to take some of these initiatives on their own. What I think is interesting is that there's a whole bunch of policy solutions out there but the Georgia case reminds me that personalities do matter. It took a couple, it took a few of their regulators there seeing the opportunity and getting past any assumptions of what clean energy meant politically to just see it purely as an economic opportunity. They had to fight against their own legislature. They had to fight against other interests from outside uh, interest groups. But they were so convinced of the economic opportunity. And I think that leadership is key to just getting that first conversation started. And then there's so many policies we can plug in. Uh, so I think, Georgia, Julia, this is going to get better because in Georgia, Stacey Abrams might be the first black female governor. She's running a terrific campaign. Shane was talking about Texas. Reminds me that the latest poll released in the Hill this week has Beto at one point down. Beto is coming, okay. Shane. I'm nervous, but I'm not scared. Um, and honestly, I'm really neither. One, Cruz is going to win. Two, I love having dinner with you so much, Brandon and Julia, that even if I have to foot the bill for, for a little sport, I'm, I'm happy to do that. I think uh, for our uh, Twitter followers out there, we'd love to take recommendations on where Shane is going to buy Julia and I dinner oh, that's uh, a good on the one. Beto race. Yeah. crowdsourcing the most expensive food in LA. Yes, that's, let's that's, do it. That's yeah. Hashtag turn Shane blue and where should we have dinner on Shane? <laughs> this is trending with my partners now, by the way. This is this is what's happened to me. This is what you've done to me with turn Shane blue. This is gross. <laughs> turn Shane blue is trending. <laughs> oh yeah, they love to mess with me now. So on our Slack feed, whenever I say something that's not sufficiently conservative, it's hashtag turn Shane blue. <laughs> I mean, the 100% movement, you know, people said we were crazy, but we might be able to turn and Shane. Shane has come out. Let's just rewind for one moment to the, the time when Shane was talking about petroleum and increasing electrification. On previous episodes, you talked about being opposed to 100% because you see a role for fossil fuels. And you are also pro-electrification, though, which is interesting. And if anyone's been listening to this show, they'll probably pause on that for a minute because it, it doesn't. it maybe seems antithetical. But in your in your mind, it, there's a flow there. Yeah, I think there's something for everyone. So the great the great thing about electrons is they can move when needed wherever they're needed. And so if you have a gas station and a delivery truck puts a bunch of gasoline in the underground storage tank, that's going to be there until some car shows up and draws on it. If you have EVs, but then you also have factories and you know agricultural processing facilities, all sorts of stuff, that electron, if your system is smart enough and you've, if you've invested enough in the infrastructure, if the car needs to be charged, the electron can be there. If the factory needs to be powered, the electron can be there. And I just love the idea of being able to 
move energy where you need it, when you need it, without waste. That's why I'm a fan of electrification. Now, where I think the left, or at least the environmental movement, should also be able to get on board is, if you believe that someday there will be 100% renewables, then you shouldn't care why I believe what I believe. You should believe that if we electrify everything, that electricity will eventually come from zero carbon energy. And so, in my view, it really is a win for all. For the record, you just happen to also believe that it will be very difficult, if not impossible, to eliminate petroleum entirely. And this is, again, getting out of electricity into the rest of the energy system. Yeah, well, first of all, I absolutely believe that there will be gasoline-powered cars on the road for quite a while. But that doesn't mean we can't increase the share of EVs significantly and we can't invest in some infrastructure and some policies to make that happen. Second, I'm a huge believer in natural gas. I know that's not widely shared you know, in, in the green community. That's fine. I believe if we were, um, if we better utilize our natural gas, for example, and I'll get our listeners to tweet at me after this, but if we expanded our pipeline capacity, we'd flare less. And flaring is actually not good for greenhouse gas emissions. So there's things we can do to facilitate natural gas. I know that not everyone's a fan of that. So I'm not saying I'm anti-fossil fuels. I just think electrification solves a lot of problems. And I think natural gas is part of that solution. One of the big controversies, I think, around 100% California is what to do with the gas pipeline network. That is something that will have to be determined. That's a sunk cost. Bookmark that one for future discussions. And now it's time for our last section, If You Can't Say Something Nice, where our Democrat and Republican co-hosts have to say something redeeming about the opposing political party. Brandon, take us home. I wanted to say something nice about Senator John McCain. Uh, There's been a lot of discussion about him. Uh, after he passed away, um, he he co-sponsored the cap and trade bill uh, ten years ago, um, and so he did play a leadership role in climate. He's not not everything that we wanted. There's been some fair criticism from Vox's David Roberts, who you know said that McCain did it when it was convenient for him, uh, but didn't you know take political risk when it really mattered on climate. But I think the fact that a Republican you know led and co-sponsored on a cap and trade bill um, is something that is important, and I want to recognize that. And I also think in other areas he did show courage. There's been a lot of discussion this week about the town hall during the presidential campaign in 2008 where a woman said that she couldn't trust Obama, he's an Arab, and John McCain grabbed the microphone from her and said, he's he's a decent family man, he's a good citizen, and we need more of that today. Um, you know, you contrast that with the way that Trump is handling these things, um, and I hope more Republicans can be like John McCain in those moments and, and correct, you know, inaccuracies and stand up against, you know, racism and such. Absolutely. I think a lot of people would agree with that, and... Um, And I I personally love one quote that John McCain gave on climate change, saying, suppose climate change is not real and all we do is adopt green technologies, which our economy and our technology is perfectly capable of. And then all we've done is given our kids a cleaner world. I mean, that's the logic that I just think is- Such a great quote. So airtight. So anyway- so um, not planned, but probably not um, not too strange that we're on the same subject here. <clears throat> Mine, uh, my say something nices are going to go out to two people who I never thought would have made the cut. Um, and that's former Vice President Joe Biden and former President Barack Obama for strangely different reasons. Um, Joe Biden gave a very kind, heartfelt eulogy, uh, which is great. They were friends. So that makes a lot of sense. More interesting to me is President Barack Obama. Um I, as I read, and I I don't know any of these people personally, they didn't have a particularly close relationship either before or after the campaign. Um, They didn't become close uh, later on in life. And I think President Obama was quite surprised that he was asked uh, to eulogize John McCain. 
but eulogize him when President Trump wasn't even invited. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that, really that's interesting a, dichotomy there. When Sarah Palin, too, which there's a whole lot to unpack. Uh, Steve Schmidt was another person who was not invited, who ran his campaign. So I think there's a whole lot to unpack there. But what was interesting is that the campaign was against Obama. And I'm sure that there were a lot of things said on both sides that led to some hard feelings. And I just had assumed when I read that that Obama was asked to eulogize him, that they'd patched it up and built some sort of friendship. But now that I've heard that that's not true, they don't hate each other. They just have no real you know, relationship at all. I think it's pretty big of him to to, you know, see that he was asked. Um, and determined that he was going to go ahead and do that. So so credit to him. And it is just a, a really interesting dynamic that I think is not present right now. Um, we can all, you know, shoot arrows and cast blame, but it, but it's just a, a, you don't see this right now, and it's kind of cool to see it. See the sort of bipartisanship on, you know, around, around mutual respect, or what do you, well, what are you thinking about? Just an acknowledgement that other people are human beings, regardless of their, of their political points of view. I mean, one should always get the back of their friends or speak kindly about people they respect or admire, but I don't think these two men had a relationship. One of them was a president. One of them tried to stop him from being president. And so um, to ask the person that beat you to eulogize you is strange in its own right, and then for that person to agree to do it when there was no debt owed or anything like that, uh, is also, you know, being quite a big person. It's, it's putting country over party. And and John McCain's trying to send a message there that some things are more important than party. And that's what I'm just hoping more Republicans can emulate going forward. Uh, well, I would hope that, that that both sides can emulate these behaviors. But but in this particular case, I just that stood out to me because they didn't have a relationship. Um, and had they, you know, it would still be great like Joe Biden. But you should always, you know, be heartfelt about your friends. Uh, more interesting when you're heartfelt about your opponents. Well, it'll be interesting to see if leaders like McCain persist or emerge again. We're in a moment, I think, of immense change on both sides of the aisle. And uh, his uh, his bipartisan support for climate bill could be something, a relic of the past. Or we could see a lot more Republicans step up. I think that's something that we'll look for and um, see if anyone takes up his mantle in future. And that is our show for this week. Again, this is Political Climate. I'm Julia Piper, Senior Editor with Green Tech Media with Brandon Hurlbut and Shane Skelton. Again, tweet us if you want us to cover a topic. We're at poly underscore climate, P-O-L-I underscore climate. We want to hear from you. We really appreciate your feedback. Thanks so much for listening and tune in again soon. Mm-hmm.